we should lean into this book at the very back of our Bibles and see what it has to say for us. See what God is saying through his apostle John to us today. Because we also saw that this contained a message given to Jesus to share with his servants for the latter days. And my friends, I am convinced we are living in the latter days. Uh, it is, it is, we do not have the time in this particular series to go through all of the many different reasons for why I believe that. Matthew 24, Daniel, uh, several places in the book of Daniel, chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and then Revelation 13, and there are reasons to believe it. Uh, so this is, this is why we are looking at it. We want to learn of Jesus. Last night, our title for the, the message was Revelation and the Gospel, because we read in Revelation 14 and verse 6 that there was an angel flying in the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel for, summarizing it, everybody, all the peoples, men and women, boys and girls, regardless of the language that you and I might or might not know, regardless of how close they live to us in northwest Georgia or the farthest reaches of Africa, the gospel message is for everyone. And so that was last night's presentation. We had a good time. I would encourage you to come tonight as we continue. This is, this is for those who don't know, I guess kind of a two-weekend intensive. I guess that's a good way of describing it. Last night, right now, tonight, and then we repeat the same schedule next weekend. Friday evening at 7, Saturday morning at 11, Saturday evening at 7. We will wrap up this message in Revelation 14. Last night, we also talked about how much like Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the Shema was Israel's slogan, if you will. That was their declaration of faith. That was their, their, their rallying call, their rallying cry that they taught to their children, that they taught each other. They recited it. They memorized it and so forth. We discussed that Revelation 14, the three angels' messages, are really the Seventh-day Adventist church's rallying cry. It's not the embodiment of all of the things that we believe, but it is a, a unique passage in the Bible that our church believes we should be proclaiming in a special and specific way. You can go to just about any Seventh-day Adventist church around the world and mention the three angels' messages. They will know what you're talking about. That's what we mean by it's our rallying cry. It's really important, and it's saturated with the gospel, that good news of forgiveness of sins and the free offer of grace from God himself. I encourage you to study into it, and if you have questions about it, see me afterwards. We can... We can look at it again. We're not going to go through the whole thing all over. This morning, though, we are going to go to our second message, Revelation's greatest issue. Uh, this is the first angel's message. If you have your Bibles, we will be looking in Revelation 14. Uh, we will go elsewhere, but that's where we're going to start. And before we do that, though, let's have one more word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this beautiful Sabbath day, for a chance to worship and honor you. Lord, I pray that we would understand this greatest issue at the heart of the book of Revelation. Uh, bring it home to us today, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Imagine yourself having tickets to 
Carnegie Hall. And you got to listen and watch and experience what it would be to have one of the Philharmonic orchestras playing Beethoven's greatest hits, or Bach or Tchaikovsky. And you got to sit in maybe the first level of the upper deck, so it, it's prime seating, and you can see the people, and, and everyone is dressed up nicely, and you've got the brass and the strings, the percussion and the woodwinds all in harmony, playing wonderfully, and your heart is lifted up, and it's fantastic. And then imagine that someone comes running into the hall, screaming at the top of their lungs, turn on the lights, everyone get up and leave, fire. As a side note, it's not illegal to yell fire in a, in a crowded theater. That, don't believe that if people say it. But imagine someone does this in Carnegie Hall. You're there. You're enjoying it. Your tickets were not $5. They might be a little bit more. Maybe you took your significant other first to dinner, and it was a nice place because you were dressed up nicely. And then you went to the hall, and then they had the chandeliers and the velvet and all the things that are there, and you wondered, how do I respond to the cry of fire? Well, a couple of options. One, I paid too much for these seats. I ain't leaving. These are mine. Mine, row A, A, seat six and seven. I paid too much. I'm not leaving. Maybe because uh, we live in a world where sometimes it's good to be skeptical, you have learned to be skeptical, you might say, I don't believe that person. I don't know them. They're random Joe Smith or Jane Doe. Why are they yelling fire and why should I trust them at their word? Uh, maybe you believe them, but you don't believe it's urgent. Now, it's true. Perhaps there's a fire, but maybe they just saw someone use a lighter outside the back exit, and that's what they mean by fire. It's not urgent. I can take my time. It's in the far back corner, and I'm up here safe and sound. I'll go when I feel like it. Uh, or... I guess you, you could also just take them at their word, understand the urgency of it, respond and get up and leave to safety. Um, I might recommend that if there's some evidence that the person is, is urgently proclaiming it, that there's some sincerity in how they're delivering it, and they don't stop with it, maybe you should respond accordingly. They're trying to get your attention, and it's good to respond to warnings. But warnings are valid only if the crisis is real, which is why we go through some of those other options. Is it real? Is it true? Uh, warnings have no value in a fake crisis. We're looking at the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, and they are God's final warning given in love to a world on the verge of a stupendous crisis. In our study, we've, we've seen that the gospel is to be proclaimed in all the world as a witness to all the nations, to prepare our world for the coming of Jesus. This is not unlike something that is also recorded in the Bible where a warning was given. The messages today are just as important as Noah's message was in his day. But a good question to ask is, was anyone saved who didn't go in the ark? No. How long did Noah preach? 120 
years. Someone might wonder if he was a broken record. Someone might think that he was just being a little redundant. Can you imagine if you walked through these doors and and weekend and weekend and weekend afterwards, I stood here in the pulpit and I told you the exact same sermon, word for word. Would you continue to come with the same sense of urgency? Sadly, in Noah's day, eight carried through over the full 120 years. Uh, Was it God's intent that only eight people get in the boat? No. That boat was certainly large enough for more. He wanted more. The urgency was for more. The cry was, please come in. God would have been delighted if the entire sea were filled with arks. Can you imagine, rather than a singular boat, a fleet of ships because everyone took Noah at his word? That story would be written very differently in the book of Genesis, wouldn't it? God sent Noah to prepare the world for the flood. Sin had reached its limits, and in the antediluvian world, the society had filled up the cup of their iniquity. Genesis helps us understand revelation because we see repeated themes from then to now. The crisis that the world faced in Noah's day is similar to the crisis that the world will face in the last days because in Genesis 6-3, God said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, meaning that God had striven for men for a long time and they had rejected his pleas. Well, because God is not one who who programs us to be like a robot, he honors our freedom of choice. He goes, if they don't want to listen to me, at some point I'm going to stop talking to them. They have made a choice. But why did they stop talking or stop listening to God? Why was it that God's spirit wouldn't strive forever? What was the condition of humanity in the days of Noah? The Bible tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Heaven did all it could, but the cancer of sin was deep and malignant. It had metastasized everywhere, and these people were not looking for chemo. They were happy and content with what they had. And so God left them to their choice. The cancer of sin must, however, be rooted out of our world. I'm tired of seeing the results of sin. I am tired of experiencing the results of sin. I am no longer 12. My knees hurt. I think others can relate maybe more than me. I have had close loved ones die. Death is the result of sin. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the pandemics. I'm tired of the earthquakes. I'm tired of the hateful rhetoric. I'm tired of the gossip and the slander. That's all fruit of sin. I'm sick of it. And I know God is too. He wants to root it out of our world. And God back then started over with righteous Noah and his family. Once again, like in that time, God is sending his final warning message to the world. Once again, heaven is making a final appeal. Once again, Jesus is giving this world its last warning in the messages 
of the three angels. In Noah's day, the world was destroyed by water. The Bible tells us that in the last destruction, it will be by fire. In the last days, just like in Noah's days, once those 120 years dragged on, I'm sure there were cynics. And there are cynics today who ask, where is the promise of his coming? Second Peter warned us that this would be true. Maybe we can get this to not lean back so badly just as I, as I skip along. I don't know how we can do that. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read that knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. As I observed the ads, as I observed the ads for this Facebook post, and I don't actually know any of the people personally, and if this is you, forgive me. As I observed the comments, at least two people responded in a similar fashion. Why should I attend? We've known all these things forever, and it's going to continue like this. Eh. In essence, that was their response. That was their comment. Peter told us that this would be the case. But he continues, and he says, don't listen to the scoffers, because the day of the Lord will, it will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Please note, there is not a might, there is not a maybe, there is not a perhaps if the seasons are right. Will come. Don't listen to the scoffers. This next part, the coming as a thief, that's for the scoffers. The scoffers are going to get caught off guard because they're not prepared for it. They're not listening to the call. They're not listening to the warnings. They have turned down the dials on their hearing aids so they can't hear the comments any longer, like my father-in-law used to do. They don't want to listen. But we know that it's going to be obvious. Elements do not melt with heat. Earth and the works that are in them being burned up, that ain't secret, my friends. You're going to see it, know it, experience it. It will happen, but the scoffers are caught unawares. I would implore you to not be one of those scoffers caught unaware. As we study the book of Revelation, we see that the purpose of this book is to prepare a people to be ready for Jesus' soon return. It's a purpose of Revelation. A people that will unite with him in giving his last day message to the world. And this is where we get to today's passage. Revelation 14 and verse 7, the next one after what we studied last night. Let us read it. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Since the time in which we are now living is the final period of this earth's history, the everlasting gospel of Christ's grace leads us to make a total commitment of our lives to the one who gave his all for us. He bled all, he hung there for you and me for all. And in return, God is asking for all. 
Let us break this down. We begin with our first part of the passage, fear God and give Him glory. Well, what does it mean to fear God? Well, in Greek, the word for fear is phobeo, which means in the sense of reverence, awe, and respect. There is an element of afraid because God is sovereign and destruction is coming for the wicked. However, that is not why we worship God. We do not give God our allegiance and, 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 and our respect and our reverence because we are afraid of Him. We worship Him in this sense, reverence, awe, respect for who He is compared to who we are. It is an attitude of mind that is God-centered rather than self-centered. To recognize the immense love of God, His underlying endless love revealed in the everlasting gospel on Calvary, we willingly respond in loving obedience. Let's read this. I, I love this from one of my favorite books. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He won't make you do something you don't want to do, spiritually speaking. He desires only the service of love. Last night we read that we love because He first loved us. And love cannot be commanded. Try doing that to your husband or wife. Love me now. doesn't work that way. You want them to do it in return. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love Him. His character must be manifest in contrast to the character of Satan. Because when we are discussing spiritual things and the greatest issue, it comes down to whose side are you on? Whose character are you modeling yourself after? And if we are to contrast God's love with Satan's character, what does the Bible tell us about Satan's character? We get a glimpse into what uh, that original deceiver thought back in heaven before he was Satan. He was Lucifer, the light bearer. But he said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And in great profanity, he says, I will make myself like the most high. How unbelievably narcissistic can you get? How blasphemous can you be? I will be God. I'm going to overthrow Him and everything else that He has created. The essence of the debate between God and Satan, the essence of that great controversy revolves around who do we submit to? Is it God? Is it Lucifer? Is it Jesus? Or is it Satan? We just read that Lucifer was exceptionally self-centered. How many eyes did you read in that passage? How many eyes are there? He refused to submit to any authority except his own. Rather than submit to the one upon the throne, Lucifer desired to rule from the throne. And in case you are unaware, he does not respect your freedom of choice like the way the God of love does. He is happy to coerce and deceive and, and trick and lie and force and, and kill. 
if you don't go along with him. Very contrary to God. But fearing God and giving him glory is something worth understanding. So we need to better understand what it is to fear God by looking at other examples in the Bible. We're going to go through these semi-quickly. Deuteronomy 6.2 says, Fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments and statutes which I command you. Psalm 119, 73 and 74 say, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. That's a nice Hebrew parallelism of equating the commandments and God's word. It's beautiful. This is a really good quote, not by me. That's how I know it's really good. It is not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver. We're going to drive this home because some like to accuse fearing God and equating it with the commandments as y'all are trying to work your way into the pearly gates. But this is really good. It is not the importance of the thing, whatever that thing is, whatever you think you're going to do in obedience to God. But it is the majesty of the lawgiver that is to be the standard of obedience. Some, indeed, might reckon such minute and arbitrary rules as these as trifling. But the principle involved in obedience or disobedience was none other than the same principle which was tried in Eden at the foot of the forbidden tree. It is really this. Is the Lord to be obeyed in all things? We are faced with the same challenge that Eve and Adam were. Who do we listen to? Our creator or a snake? Who do we listen to? Is the Lord to be obeyed in all things? Whatsoever he commands. Is he a holy lawgiver? Are his creatures bound to give implicit assent to his will? That's Andrew Bonner quoted in J. Bridges' The Pursuit of Holiness. In other words, do you recognize God as your creator? Is he the one who directs and dictates, or are you? Do you model yourself after his character, or do you fashion yourself after Lucifer's? Self-focus, self-aggrandizing. That's the question that we have to answer. We get some good instructions on how to respond to this. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In other words, the holiness of God is where you place your thoughts. What's his character like? How deep and boundless is his love? Not the things that surround us. We've already talked about just how awful it is down here. Why would we obsess over that when we have, when we have a person who loves us, who's glorious and beautiful? That we can focus on. I dare say that would lead us to better thoughts. The final battle in this great controversy between good and evil is for our minds, not, I would say, only for our actions. You can do all the right things and have your mind in the gutter, fair enough. God wants your mind. Our actions, though, reveal what our thinking process is. When we think things as we absorb and take in and it becomes a part of us and then we put it into practice more and more, what we do then demonstrates what we are, if you will. To fear God is to make Him first in our lives. 
The wise man concluding uh, the book of Ecclesiastes after he's discussed many other things in life sums it up this way, though. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. If you want to just open up your Bible, underline a verse, highlight it, and then put a little bookmark there and say, how simply can I just summarize what all the rest of those pages have for me? Right here. And then you prayerfully wrestle over, how can that be put into action in my life? Right there. After all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We don't often talk a lot about someone's duty today and age. We talk a lot about identity or how they feel or what they get out of something. The Bible summarizes that the wisest man that has ever walked this green earth summarizes it as a duty of man to fear God and to keep his commandments. You have a responsibility. Why? Because he continues this thought and he says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There are many sins today I wish would go back into being secret. There used to be a time when actions carried shame with it, and now it seems a lot of that is out in the open. I would like it to go back behind the curtains into the secret places. But the Bible tells us that even those sins kept in secret are not kept from the eye of God. You cannot run away from it forever. God is going to bring every deed into judgment. What is this judgment? This is going to bring us to our second point in our passage for today. The message to fear God and give Him glory is not simply an arbitrary instruction. It's not just because God woke up on the right side of the bed on a Wednesday and said, this is what I want. There's a reason behind it. There is a purpose to the urgency of this call. Remember if we talked about if you're crying out fire, that's because you want people to live. You don't want people to get burnt. You want people to be saved. And, and maybe you've called a 911 so the firemen can also save the building. There's an urgency. There's a reason for that urgency. Let's read our second part, the part in red. Because the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of his judgment has come. In Ecclesiastes, we saw that God's going to bring things into judgment. If you're wondering about the timing of that judgment, it's now, my friends. The has come is in a, a way written meaning present and continuing. It is now, and it's going to go on until it's completed. I'll give you a sneak peek. The completion is when Jesus comes back to take his people home. Until that happens, the judgment goes on. It's right now. Daniel Webster, one of America's best-known statesmen and orators, uh, was asked a question one day. That question was uh, how he regarded his greatest insight, or what was his greatest insight, and this was his response. His response was, the sense of my individual responsibility to God. It's a nice, succinct statement. He goes on to expand on it, though. This thought is not pleasant to those who are living in their sins 
and out of relationship to Him. Consequently, they are not prepared to face the tremendous issues involved. But whether the issues are faced or not, the fact remains. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Romans 14. We all are responsible to God as the Word of God declares, and we cannot escape our responsibility. I would say that's why many people fear the judgment while some look forward to the judgment. And I would say there is good reason to look forward to the judgment. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Is that an exclusionary language? No. That is the most inclusionary language you can find anywhere. That all literally means all that each one may receive the things done in the body according what he has done, either good or bad. But the judgment is much, much more than just us. It involves us. It includes us. In some real way, it is about us, but it is more than us. Because we know that there's no question that we are accountable to God, We know that there is no question that we are responsible for our own actions. That's what the Word of God says. And we know that there is no question that the decisions we make will determine our eternal destiny. You're rewarded based on your choices and your actions and your faith or lack thereof. But what we want to study right now is a larger, broader picture and understanding of the judgment and how it impacts our lives. Many Christians fear the judgment. I have heard that several times from people I've known in my life. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've said it. I fear the judgment. I don't like that. Let's read about the other things. Let's not look at that. People dread having their lives reviewed before a righteous God. But as we study the judgment in our presentation today, let's remember these principles. One, in the judgment, Jesus is our judge. John 5, Jesus speaks of himself, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So the one who died for you is also the one who judges you. We are judged not by a stern, demanding God, as many people picture or claim, but we are judged by a loving Savior who is willing to die for us. But there's more. Jesus is not only our judge, he is also our defense attorney. If you can imagine having a court stacked in your favor, this is the definition of that. John writes in 1 John, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The advocate is someone who's operating on our behalf. He is the judge, and he's the one operating on our behalf, the defense attorney. Yeah. If you were to walk into traffic court and you had your violation in hand and right there was was your attorney, maybe it was bad, maybe you were going, I don't know, 200 in a 30, that would be bad. You would need an attorney for that, I dare say. You had your attorney sitting there and and the attorney stood up and the attorney says, uh, we're going to plead not guilty, your honor. And then he takes off his coat and he puts on black robes and he runs up and he sits behind the bench and he goes, all right, the plea of not guilty has been received into the records. 
Shall we continue with it? And then he takes off his robes and he puts on his coat and he runs back and he stands beside. Can you imagine how that might be a little lopsided in your favor? Because of course your attorney is going to put forth the best defense for the judge who is also himself. It's all lined up in our favor. It's wonderful. So then, what is Revelation's judgment about? Why should we take it seriously? Remember what we studied from our previous verse, that there is an everlasting gospel that is to be preached to the whole world. Well, one, have you accepted the everlasting gospel? And two, do you acknowledge God as ruler in your life? That's, in a nutshell, the crux of the judgment. Have you accepted the everlasting gospel? And do you acknowledge God as ruler in your life? In other words, like the thief on the cross, as he was speaking to Jesus, hanging next to him, both men dying, he saw in Jesus the Christ, and he saw in himself his own guilt. Do you, like that thief, accept your own guilt? I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Do you then accept the righteousness of Christ? He paid the death so you don't have to. He wants to give it to you. Do you accept it? And then finally, have you actually asked for salvation or do you continue to put it off? Just like the thief on the cross, this applies to you and I today. It's a very serious matter. Paul, in, in the epistle to the Romans, says the wages of sin is death, and that is not just simply we die here, that is also the eternal death, the forever death, uh, entirely separated from the life-giving God. But the good news is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is not condemnation without hope, in other words. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Same writer, different book, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Uh, you cannot go to a Christmas party and receive a gift and then look at the gift giver and say, here's the $10 for the No, that's rude. We don't do that. Maybe we don't like the white elephant gift exchanges and you just go, oh, another roll of toilet paper. But that's not what we're talking about. Someone who loves you has given you a priceless gift. You don't then turn around and try to give them a dollar for it. It's the free gift of God and he wants to give it to you. It is also not a result of anything that you or I do. No works so that no one may boast. We will not get to heaven and have some person say, well, I prayed a thousand prayers and you only prayed 981. We don't get to do that. All who enter those pearly gates are there because of that same free gift. No one can claim anything that they have to offer. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were created to do good things. Sin tainted that. Sin trips you up and causes you to do bad things, harmful things, hurtful things, even if you don't want to. Sin makes you. That was not God's intention for you from the beginning. We are His worksmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they don't save us. 
that, that just divorce that from your mind and anything that comes close to it. You can't do anything to uh, earn the salvation, but our good works do testify that our faith is genuine. God's final judgment strips away the pretense. God's final judgment takes off the mask that we all like to wear, strips the veneer, and shows who we really are. What is our heart made of, and whose character is it modeled after? That's why we have an appeal from Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We're going to look at two parts to this verse. One, the New Testament Greek for the word body, sumata, is better translated as the collective sum of who you are. Body, mind, emotions, it's all of you. You cannot submit your physical self thinking that your spiritual self is is somehow disembodied. It does not work that way. You cannot abuse the physical self and then think that I'm keeping my mind clean and pure. It does not work that way. Those are ancient Greek philosophies and heresies that have somehow gotten into the Christian church. We need to stop thinking that way. When it says, uh, submit your body uh, to Christ as a reasonable sacrifice, that's all of you. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You are a total package according to God. You cannot compartmentalize you. And God is looking for all. But what, I'm sorry, what is your reasonable service? Another way of translating this is an intelligent act of worship, or in my version, a spiritual worship. Uh, An intelligent act of worship, a spiritual worship, that constitutes reasonable service. Uh, in, In all that you do, when you give your mind, body, and emotions to God, you are performing an act of intelligent worship. I think that's awesome. According to Paul, our bodies are a sanctuary, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, a temple made holy by the presence of God. But that's going to bring us to our third and final point. Revelation 14.7 ends with the statement, we've seen fearing God and giving Him glory, we've seen the reason why, and now we see a little bit of the how. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We are called to worship God. All of ourselves are called to worship God, and the Bible describes it as a reasonable service. God doesn't ask of you something unreasonable. What does this mean? Well, one, you place your body on the altar as a living sacrifice. You open your heart and your mind to God's spirit so that he can influence you. He can soften your hard, sin-filled heart. He can make you more sensitive to spiritual, God-led things. You have to, you have to submit to what God wants to do. That's what it means to sacrifice your body on the altar. Your body will truly be the temple of the Holy Spirit when you do that, because only those who do that get this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Remember, God doesn't force himself. 
The Spirit of God can only dwell in you as His temple if you want Him to and allow Him to. I would encourage you to, to respond to that affirmatively, positively. Welcome it in your life. We continue, is God the center of our lives? Uh, when God is the center of our lives, our one desire is to, is to give glory to Him in every aspect of our lives. Uh, whether, we, whether that involves what we eat, what we wear, what we do for entertainments, what we watch, what we listen to, there's a lot of trash out there. And as the saying goes, trash in, trash out. Is God the center of your lives? Do you at least start your day with a prayer heavenward? At least. It's one of the easiest things you can do in your spiritual practice. Your eyes wake open because the alarm goes off and you don't want it to. You hit your snooze once or twice or three times, or maybe you've stacked up alarms in your phone like, like the younger generations do. When you eventually decide, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to get out of bed, before you do so, I really encourage you, send a word of prayer heavenward. Thank God that you have breath in your lungs that morning and your eyes open. Thank God that you know you're not going to walk through the day alone. He's promised to be with you always until the world is no more. It's still here. That means he's still here with you. Is God the center of your life when you sit down to eat your, your waffles like my son does each morning? When you want to have your, your drink or your salad or your whatever it is you eat, your pizza, do you thank God for the food? Do you ask that he bless the food so that you can be healthier more than you could be otherwise without his blessing? Acknowledge him in it. Is God in the center of your lives when you consider, when you consider your entertainment? Is it filled with filth or is it, can't hardly get away from it, but let's just say less filthy? Does it lean closer to the positive and away from the negative? Does it entice you with temptations that you struggle with? Don't watch or listen those, to those things. Stay away from it. Whatever it is, if it's a substance, if it's a people, if it's an action, whatever it is, don't let it be the center of your life in place of God. If it's your career, do you praise God that you have a job with an income regardless of where you fall on that spectrum? Praise God you have it. Millions don't. Praise God when we do. And if you find yourself without one, seek Him for one. He might lead you into something that is perfect for you. But even if you go for a while without, still put God first. Because He still cares for you. We give glory to God as we reveal His character to the world through lives committed to doing his will. And this is even more important in the light of earth's end time judgment. Any life focused primarily on self, narrowed down in, and I, I love this phrase, we used it again from last night, narrowed it down in the claustrophobic confines of its own littleness. It's a very small life. If you want to live a big life, live a life for God. If you want to live a tiny claustrophobic, uh, squeezed in kind of life, live a life for self. Live a life for God because we give glory to God when we reveal his character to the world 
What an amazing opportunity. We get to show others God himself. That's impressive. That's big. Well, if you notice some of the phrasing at the end of this, this, last, little, this last little sentence, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, we will notice that we also give glory to God by acknowledging him as our creator. Genesis 1.1, the Bible opens this way, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This verse is the foundation for all of scripture. Moses did not see fit to explain God's existence. Moses did not see fit to just think grand philosophical, here's where I know there's a divine being that loves me and made things. Nope, it's assumed it's there, God. And then God did what? Well, God is first known as the creator. God created. Uh, This Hebrew verb is linked to God's creative activity. It is important to God. This is different than the Hebrew word for making or made. This is creating. It belongs to God. Only he can do these kinds of acts. He speaks. The sun, the moon, and the stars appear in the sky. He speaks and grass jumps up. He speaks and deers bound through the grass and trout leap in the streams. Only for man and woman did he not speak. He knelt into the dirt and he shaped us with his own hands. That's, that's a personal involvement in his creation, distinctly different from all the rest of it. And it's a wonderful thing that he created you and me. It's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. One example of many. Isaiah writes this, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Yeah, we, we read sometimes an article where it says, a star is dying, it's soon to disappear, it's going to become... Nope, God knows it. Not one is missing. God knows when that star becomes, I don't know, the different dwarfs or the giants or whatever they call, and then they collapse in, and then you know, we find out about it well after the fact. God knows them by name, and he goes, oh, there goes Sally. I don't know. You know, there goes Pleiades. There goes, you know, Orion's still there. Pleiades is still there. But God knows them. God knows them. When we look at the images that are coming through James Webb Telescope, if you have been here for a little while and you've heard me preach, you know I'm fascinated by these images coming on our new telescope. Uh, James Webb is looking farther out into space than anything else before. In fact, it is looking so far and it's seeing so many new things that just this week it was reported. It is re- this one telescope is reshaping the, the astrophysic kind of the- theories revol- in, involving the universe. The one telescope, it's, it's just blowing that, that whole discussion wide open and saying, ah, funny how humans might be wrong for so many years. Look at how vast it is out there. We have to change our approach to it. When you look up there and you see those swirling galaxies and those bright twinkling stars, think of the creator God. Think of him who the the Bible says these are his footstool. That's how vast he is. That's why I'm amazed with the James Webb telescope. I really don't care about the theories that they're, they're debating. I think it's neat. This is awesome. This speaks to me of a God I cannot wait to meet. It also tells us that if God can shape the galaxies and if God can shape this earth, 
And if God made mankind perfect at the beginning, he can also make us that way again. Because every one of us here has stumbled and fallen and has a broken spirit on some level. On some level, everyone here, no one is exempt. But in 2 Corinthians, we read, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ, you can be recreated and refashioned after his similitude. What a beautiful promise. Only the creator can do that. That's why acknowledging him as creator matters. But the account of the creation also includes this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. You see, Jesus is also worthy of our worship, as we've seen in our verse from Revelation. Worship him who made all of those things. Well, at the end of the making all of those things, he placed one more really important time period. Uh, that last stamp of authority, that last stamp of this is mine and it belongs to me on his creation, the Sabbath. See, God rested on the Sabbath, and that's why it is significant. Creation and redemption are at the heart of all true worship, and we see that the Sabbath is significant because it speaks of the Creator's care and the Redeemer's love. That's in the Sabbath. So God blessed the seventh day, and He made it holy. If we count one, two, three, four, five, six... Which one of those six does the Bible say God blessed and made holy? None. Which one does the Bible say he did bless and make holy? The seventh. If you count your calendar days, and we are all familiar with them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you will find yourself today on a Saturday. You, you will. And no matter the calendar around the globe, however you count the days, you will end up number seven on a Saturday. That's the day that God set aside and blessed it. Why? Because on it, God rested from his work that he had done. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he wanted to enjoy the beauty and the majesty of his creation. He rested because he wanted to spend time with his greatest creation, Adam and Eve, you and I. He rested because he wanted nothing else to distract him or us from spending time together as a heavenly family. That's why he rested. He rested so man and woman wouldn't spend their first full day together thinking that they had to labor on something. It was all a gift from God. Here's your home. Here's your mate. Here are the animals. Now just enjoy them for a day. You don't have to do anything else. As we worship on the Sabbath, we open our hearts to receive a special blessing, that special blessing that he placed on that day and no other. And that's why the Sabbath is the eternal symbol of our rest in him. We rest in him because of what he has done in creating and redeeming us. We observe the Sabbath to acknowledge his creatorship and his sovereignty in our lives. We keep the seventh-day Sabbath not to work toward salvation, but because we are already saved. You only get to thoroughly enjoy the Sabbath when you, when you just know, ah, Jesus has done it all for me. I can just rest in him. That's what the Sabbath speaks of. 
That's what the Sabbath means. We know that it's eternal from the Old Testament to the New because the writer of Hebrews says this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the early Christian church. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Are you striving to enter the rest that Jesus offers you today? Salvation, the Sabbath, forgiveness of sins, hope in eternity. Are you striving to enter that rest? Our verse says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's an urgent call. It's an important call. It's a call for everyone. Are you fearing God and giving him glory? Do you love him enough to acknowledge him as supreme in your life? He loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross so you could have forgiveness of sin and hope of eternity in heaven. Do you love him in return? The hour of his judgment has come. We've seen that if you fear and glorify God, you acknowledge him in that way, the judgment you welcome because in the judgment, Jesus is on your side. Judgment is not because some arbitrary God wants to just zap people. The judgment is to prove that you belong to him. Look forward to the judgment, but it's right now. You don't have time to wait. And then finally, worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Demonstrate your fealty to him with reverence and awe, self-sacrifice. Worship and glorify him. Give him the credit in your life. Look to him for guidance in all things. Is he the center? Do you praise his name or do you praise some other lowercase g God in your life? Is he your center? Because we give glory to God by acknowledging him as our creator, our recreator, and our redeemer. Story goes this way. <clears throat> Many years ago, an old farmer visited London for the first time in his life. I would love to visit London. That's on my bucket list places to go. I am not this man. <laughs> an old farmer visited London for the first time. He wandered into one of the city's great art galleries to look around. Do you think he saw some fine paintings? Do you think he saw paintings protected with rope and lasers and glass and security guards and don't touch that, please? I think so. There was one painting, though, that caught his attention. It was a wonderful painting of Jesus hanging upon the cross. He stopped before it, and as he gazed at the picture, a great love for the one who hung there flooded his heart, and he couldn't help himself but say, bless him. I love him. I love Jesus. He was so moved with what that picture meant in reality for him, he couldn't stay quiet. He had to express it. Others in the gallery heard the old man's words, because if you can imagine, an art gallery is usually a little quiet, a little hushed. If you can imagine someone saying, bless him, I love Jesus, that might draw some attention. Well, the crowd gathered around, and, and as they saw tears going down his cheeks, hat in his hand and forgetful of everything else around him. The observers were also touched because perhaps not a few of them wondered if Jesus can move this man, maybe he can move me. They drew near to the old farmer, the old countryman, 
Maybe someone put their arm around his shoulder. Maybe someone else just stood close by. And they also said, I love him too, brother. I love Jesus as well. Seeing what had taken place, more people stepped forward. So do I, and more and more echoed the cry of that old farmer. That's the call that we have to take up. That's the call of the three angels' message. Because without Christ, Revelation's judgment is a terrifying event, and many people run away from it. With Christ, we can look forward to it. But when we really see, when we truly see the clear picture of Jesus standing in our behalf in the judgment, we too, with this old farmer, can say, and we will also praise and glorify God by saying, Oh, how I love Jesus. Is it your desire today to take up this call and to say it in a way that attracts others' attention? If it is your desire, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer and then remain standing as we get ready for our final song. If it's your desire to take up this this cry, this call, this final warning, please bow your heads and pray that with me. Loving Heavenly Father, we... We see to what great lengths heaven has gone to save your creation, your loved sons and daughters from loss and hurt and death. We praise your name for it and we acknowledge you as not only he who shaped and formed us, but also he who redeemed and sustains us. We acknowledge and we praise you as the one who goes with us and before us, leading us along the way to that great day when you will come to finally lead us home. Lord, I pray that we would not be silent, but like that old farmer, we would declare our love for you and that it would be attractive to others. Lord, I pray that you would acknowledge the, the statements of affirmation by those gathered here. And then I would also pray that if there was someone wavering, someone standing in the middle of that road, and they don't know which way to go. Lord, I pray that rather than letting them be hit by oncoming traffic, by the enemy of souls. Lord, I pray that you would come beside this person through the presence of your Holy Spirit and inspire them to say yes and step out of the middle of the road and firmly onto your side. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for your love towards us. Please go with us the rest of this Sabbath day, we pray in your name. Amen.